Now, when I arrived here this morning, I used to say that all the time, and then, you know, after a while, you've heard it so much. When I arrived here this morning, I fully expected that there would be no power. And it really does bring back pleasant memories, not unpleasant. I don't know if you remember, those of you who were here in 2005, which was a handful of you, many of you perhaps, but about my fourth week here, I'm up here on the platform behind that acrylic lectern, and really pretty uh, brand new at the time, and about, I don't know, 10 minutes into the sermon, everything goes off, all of the power. And so the only light we saw was basically coming from just outside on this side from the outdoors. I guess that's a window out there. And all I remember hearing is Weldon Rickman. Remember Weldon? He's with the Lord now. I'm looking forward to seeing him again. He hollers out and he says, Now let's see how good you are. <laughs> Good morning, church. Uh, Chuck, thank you for the, for the communion, and of course, Joe David for the singing, and uh, JP for the announcements. It seems like every time I move this way, I, this mic will be going out, so I'm going to try to stand still, which actually that's impossible. <laughs> I, I can't do that, but we'll see if I can continue with this. Um, anyway, I do welcome everyone here today. Uh, this is Palm Sunday. I know that we, in our fellowship over the years, haven't really celebrated the church calendar, and that's perfectly fine. It really is. And I think it's perfectly fine to celebrate it. When you do celebrate it, there's kind of a rhythm to the year. I have to admit that. You know, beginning with, with the season of Advent, and then the birth of Christ and Christmas, all the way through Lent, Easter, etc. There's kind of a rhythm to it all. Uh, but I think the Lord is completely pleased with how we uh, worship Him every Sunday. In fact, for us, every Sunday is really Easter, is it not? It's always the day of the risen Lord. For that matter, every day is. Um, but anyway, today is, is Palm Sunday, so I thought I would take the text from John chapter 12. I think I'll start like this. On the first day of the last week of Jesus on earth, we find our Lord triumphantly entering Jerusalem. Now he's entering to the cries, to the, to the praises of the crowds, because they're thinking this conquering king is, is arriving. Remember now, he had just healed Lazarus, brought Lazarus from the dead. The word had spread. This is not only a healer, this is someone perhaps beyond that. And so they shout out, Savior, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The word Hosanna in Hebrew means rescuer. Save us. Save us. And they would, they would take the local branches of the palms and they would throw those on the ground with their garments as well. It was nothing more than a symbol of peace and a symbol of conquering victory. Now, I want you to know that all four Gospels 
record the last week of Jesus. Matthew chapter 19, Mark 11, Luke, pardon me, Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 12. But only John gives us the precise date. Six days, this is in John 12, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. On that particular day, when he arrives in Bethany, he has dinner with the resurrected Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Martha was serving, not to the unexpected, and so Jesus dines with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. But John specifically says six days before the Passover. The Eastern Orthodox Church calls this Lazarus Saturday. Because six days before the Passover was the seventh day of the week. It was a Saturday. Remember that they would always celebrate the Passover, which was a week-long feast, and in some traditions, two weeks long. But the Seder meal, the, the supper, was always consumed after sunset on Friday. So John records six days before the Passover. Jesus came to Bethany. And then, the very next, not next verse, but the same chapter in verses 12 and 13, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. It's a really capturing the prophecy of Zechariah in Zechariah 9 and verse 9. So we have six days after the Passover, which would be a Saturday, and then the next day would be Sunday, the Sunday before the Sunday of the glorious resurrection. And so over the last two millennia, Christianity has referred to this as Palm Sunday. I want you to know that on Monday through Wednesday, there's not much recorded in the Bible about that, at least given specifically for each day. They're kind of grouped together. But in those, on those three days, Jesus, after Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we find our Lord uh, teaching in the temple and on Olivet, probably in Gethsemane, which was a garden, I think, that belonged to John Mark's family. We don't know that for sure. Another lesson for another day. But we do know that Jesus taught in Mount Olivet and in the temple, back and forth. They were very close to each other, only really a few meters away. You've got Jerusalem, you have the temple, and then maybe a very short distance, you have the Mount of Olives, Olivet. And so Jesus would be teaching Monday through Wednesday. Then comes Thursday. We're going to go all the way through the Holy Week very quickly here. Then comes Thursday. Now, again, Christendom, Christianity calls that Monday Thursday. From the Latin Mondatum, which means commandment. Take from John 13, 37, when Jesus said, This is my commandment. That you love one another as I have also loved you. We do know on Thursday that he washed the feet of the disciples. That's when you have that wonderful exchange with, with the Apostle Peter. And then later that night they congregate in the upper room of a nameless friend. 
that nameless friend many Bible students consider to be John Mark, and who, whose father, apparently he's passed away because now by this time, John Mark and his mother Mary, and there's, that, 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 they, there, there's a whole story about this upper room, just kind of an aside very quickly. The upper room that they congregated for the last supper, for the Lord's Supper, that would be instituted on, on, on this Passover, was very likely the same room in Acts chapter 12, in Acts 2 rather, when the Holy Spirit came, and then in Acts 12 we find the Apostle Peter in prison, and he's released by God, by the angels, and he uh, discovers what's happening. He thought he was in a trance, and the Bible says he then uh, prepared to Mary's house where the disciples were gathered for prayer. Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark. At any rate, on the Thursday of this particular week, before the, before the crucifixion on Friday and the glorious resurrection on Sunday, we find Jesus in the upper room celebrating an early Passover, where he takes the bread out of context and breaks it and says, Take and eat for this is my body. Matthew 26, uh, Mark 14, Luke 22, and John 13 through 17. All four Gospels. Then he takes the cup, again, the third cup, out of context, and he gives it to them and says, Drink of it all of you, for this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so we see on that Thursday evening the institution of what we call the Lord's Supper. Then they sing a hymn, and they leave, they repair out to Gethsemane, where Judas is gone. Eight of the eleven stay at the gate, and his three closest friends, the two sons of Zebedee and Peter, James and John, and the apostle Peter, go with our Lord into the inner garden, and that's when he falls before the Lord, stones throw away, and you have that whole episode of him saying, now my soul is troubled, which we're going to be just talking about in just a moment. Uh, Father, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. And so you have that wonderful moment. Then early Friday morning, which is when they're in Gethsemane, uh, you see the crowds come, you know, led by Judas Iscariot, who betrays our Lord. So now we're into Friday. They call it Good Friday for a reason. The word good. He was crucified, but there will not be a Sunday without a crucifixion. And so you have on Friday, our Lord is, is not only betrayed, but falsely accused, beaten, goes through the torture of the crucifixion, is taken off the cross before sunset, buried in an empty tomb. And then Saturday, nothing is said about it. Some believe that 1 Peter 3, 19, when the Apostle Peter, this is a very challenging text that I'll never preach on because I just don't know enough. But this is when Peter said that Jesus, after his death, went to preach to the, prison, to the um, prisoners, um, to those in prison, meaning implying the afterlife, those who fell during the flood. And so some say on Holy Saturday, Jesus goes to hell and preaches to those who are in prison there. We don't know that, 
That's why it's very silent about that particular day. And then, of course, on Sunday, the glorious resurrection. And we'll, we'll really celebrate that next week. We celebrate it all the time. But next week, we'll really highlight it. So there you have Holy Week. For this morning's message, I want to remind us that on the first day, on that Palm Sunday, when Jesus triumphantly entered Jerusalem, he finally gets by himself and just the twelve. And he tells them, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? Then he exclaims, no, for this purpose I have come to this hour. And he's in prayer, John 17, uh, uh, I mean John, John 12. And then he lifts his head up and he says, Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven and said, I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. Amen. Hmm. Now I know we use the word glory, and I think sometimes the word is misunderstood. In fact, I, you know, which is very common in, in different languages. It really, um, you know, comes from the the, the, the Greek. It's really a secular Greek, so I, I think there's very little meaning in John 12 when in the original text when they use the word doxazo. But it, 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 it doesn't have its roots in, in, the, in the Greek culture. It has its roots in the Hebrew. And the Hebrew, it means God's radiance, God's presence, God's Shekinah. And so whenever Jesus is praying, Father, glorify your name, he's telling the Father, asking the Father, make your presence known through me. For this purpose I came to this hour. Glorify me. Make your presence known. He'll later say in John 17, 5, he prays, and I will give glory to my disciples. So a wonderful text. And so he's asking for glorification. And the Father reminds the Son of Man, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So as far as I can tell from this text, there are two times that Jesus was glorified. Once before the world's Existed. The first glorification, John 17, 5. Father, um, give me the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That's an incredible text. Father, he's in prayer. Give me the glory that I had with you before we created the world before the world existed. That's the glory I want. I want to be not present. I want to be one with you. Your radiance, your presence. And of course, that's what he's prayed for in John chapter 17. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. In many and various ways, God spoke of all to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son, uh, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom he created the world. And then the very next verse, Hebrews 1 and 2, the writer says, he reflects the glory of God. So the first glorification clearly came before creation. When God, Father, Son, and Spirit were one. And we have that in many different places in Holy Scripture. Not the least of which is John chapter 1, the first four verses. You know? And we could go back and read that as well. But, but you know, you can read it on your own. But the second glorification, by the way, what happened between these two glorifications? The second one is the ascension. 
But you have, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And then Paul, in Philippians 2, verses 6 through 9, reminds us of this wonderful hymn the early church would sing. He emptied himself, the glorification, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And then Paul adds, for this reason, you know, that God has exalted him and bestowed upon him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Adonai, God, is Lord to the glory of God. So you've got one glorification before the world existed. You have our Lord Savior emptying himself, taking our form and later our sin. And then you have a second glorification. Notice what it says in John chapter 7. I'm going to read this. Verses, yeah, those verses, verses 37 through 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit. Stay with me. He said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet Glorified. That's right. The only way that we receive the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, is when God the Father glorified God the Son. Yes. And that happened on Pentecost. That's right. After the glorious resurrection, he appeared 40 days. And then we have him in Luke chapter 24, Luke wrote Luke Acts. Luke 24, closing that out, opening with Acts 1, Jesus is speaking to the disciples, and he's speaking in Bethany, and he says, um, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's right. And then, Luke records, while he, uh, pardon me, after he said this, he was taken up in glory, the ascension. In fact, Paul in 1 Timothy 3.16 reminds us of the same thing. Once again, using a, a very well-known hymn at the time. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So there you have it, church. The two glorifications are before the world existed and the ascension. The resurrection by the power of God, that conquered death. But our Lord would not be, uh, uh, would not be uh, glorified for 50 days after that point. 40 days on earth, then he ascends. That's when it all happens. And then 10 days later, the Spirit comes on Pentecost. Joel's prophecy is fulfilled, and the Spirit falls on all flesh. Peter preaches the first gospel sermon, you know, all the way through Acts 2. When they heard this, they were 
cut to the heart, verse 36, and asked Peter and the other apostles, what do we do? And Peter said, you have to repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now it's accessible. Yes. But notice what Jesus is telling Christians today, the Antioch body of Christ. John 17, 22. The glory, he's talking to God the Father. The glory that you have given me, I have given them. You know, we sing the song, we sang it just before, in my life, Lord, be glorified. In my song, Lord, be glorified. In your church, Lord, be glorified. Absolutely one of the most meaningful songs I've ever sung and I've ever read over my entire life, including all the great hymns. Because it so reminds me of what I need to be doing 24-7. Yeah. All the time. Amen. So I ask you, what does it mean when we sing, In my life, Lord, be glorified. What does that mean? In my life, Lord, be glorified. Be, be, be glorified today. We could, these could be three sermons, so... Obviously, that's not going to happen. But I can tell you that as I see the song and I see it corroborated by Scripture, I see my life meaning outward, my song meaning inward, and your church meaning collectively. So I need to glorify God in my life. I can't glorify God in your life, only in my life. Let your life... What does Jesus say, uh, Matthew 5... Uh, 14, you are the light of the world. A city set upon a hill cannot be hid, nor to be light a candle and put it under a bushel. But they put it on a lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works and give God the glory. And I know I'm nowhere close to my hermano Miguel in language. But I want to read this in Spanish. Hagan brillar su luz delante de todos para que ellos pueden ver las buenas obras de ustedes y alaben al Padre que está en el cielo. Let your light shine before men. And it's this outward expression. And we could, I could bring up scriptures on love. You know, Matthew 7, 12. Um, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. The great Shema, Deuteronomy 6. The repetition of the Shema, Matthew chapter 22, um, verses 34 through 40. When the ruler asked Jesus, Rabbi, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, the greatest commandment is to love God, and the second is like the first. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. John 13, 37. We opened with that at, at, at the very beginning. A new commandment I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you. That's the mandatum. That's the command. And it was given on a Thursday. In my life, Lord, be glorified. And I don't know of any way to glorify my life except to love everyone I come in contact with. Do I do that all the time? No. I miss that's it. It was asked rhetorically, right? 
Absolutely not. But it's what I aspire to. And it's what you aspire to. In my song, Lord, be glorified. If I had your voice, I'd sing it right now. Sing a solo. Fortunately, in my song, what does that mean? I, I, I've never spoken to the lyricist. But song is always metaphor for spirit, for soul. Not just in our secular world today, but in scripture. Ephesians 5.19, the apostle Paul tells the Ephesian church, he lets them know, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, addressing one another in, in songs and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. So when I sing in my song, Lord, be glorified, I'm talking about my inner self. It is possible to do the right thing. There's no love involved. But it is possible to fool a few people some of the time. To do the right thing with an ulterior motive. I guess one could technically say that in your outward life, you're loving others. But inwardly, God knows better. He, he, so we sing, in my life, Lord, be glorified. In my soul, Lord, be glorified. And in your church, Lord, be glorified. What does John say in 1 John chapter 4? Once again, each of these could be messages. How can you love God, whom you have not seen, if you do not love your brother, whom you have seen? 1 John 4, 20. That's not possible. It's impossible. You can't do it. So when we sing, in your church, Lord, be glorified, we're talking about your presence, your radiance, your Shekinah. May it come from this congregation. Because we are the only witness this community has. I, I mean, this local, just around the church building community, people. And don't you know that what we do collectively as the body of Christ reflects either good or, God forbid, uh, badly on Christ? We are witnesses. And if we pray, Lord, glorify us. Jesus said the moment you receive the Spirit of God, you have God's radiance, His Shekinah, His, His presence within you. Now, we are imperfect. And so that presence will not glow 24-7. But it's something that we aspire to. In my life, Lord, be glorified. In my song, Lord, be glorified. And in your church, Lord, be glorified. Debbie and I enjoy uh, an evening reading before we have our evening meal. We sometimes miss it, but generally we try to do it. Very, very brief. We're using one of Leroy Bradlow's old books. Um, little bitty, and, and, and I enjoy it, so does she. We, last week, we were reading a story about a little six-year-old boy who apparently the previous Sunday had heard the preacher talk about creation and how we're made from the dust of the ground. And he comes up some other time during the course of the week and he hugs his mommy, six years old, hugs his mother. And of course, like most mothers, she turns to, looks down and says, why are you so sweet? 
And he said, Because when God made me from dust, he added some sugar. <laughs> well, let me remind you, church, when you were born again into Christ, God added sugar. Let your light shine. That all who see it will give God the glory. Amen. Come to Christ. Come in prayer. I invite our shepherds to come down. I invite my brother Joe David, who has a wonderful voice, to lead us in this life. Please stand.